This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Good evening. Uh, I'm Will Kynes, Associate Professor of Theology here at Whitworth University, and it's my pleasure to introduce tonight's Staley Lecture. These lectures are funded through the Thomas F. Staley Foundation, which exists to bring school and college campuses a persuasive presentation of the Christian gospel in a climate of conviction. Recent Staley Lecture speakers at Whitworth include Dr. Jeremy Begbie from Duke Divinity School and Dr. Kristen D.D. Johnson from Western Theological Seminary. Our speaker this evening is Dr. Robert Heimberger, Associate Chaplain to graduate students with the Oxford Pastorate, leader of Christians in Academia with the Oxford Character Project, and editor of Word and World for the International Found Federation of Evangelical Students. Uh, he studied philosophy and music at Davidson College in North Carolina, theology at Regent College in Vancouver, and theology and Christian ethics at the University of Oxford, where he completed his doctorate. He is currently researching forgiveness after conflict within a project on the flourishing of people who have been displaced by conflict within Colombia, based at the Biblical Seminary of Colombia in Medellin. Tonight, he'll be speaking on the topic of his book, God and the Illegal Alien, Federal United States Immigration Law and a Theology of Politics, which was recently published by Cambridge University Press. I had the opportunity to get to know Rob a little bit uh, when he was in Oxford while he was writing this book. In fact, when I began planning the courses that I would teach when I made the move from Oxford to Whitworth, he was kind enough to meet with me to help me think through a potential core 350D group on immigration. That D group never came to fruition. I discovered that we already had two D groups on the topic of immigration, which is clearly a popular topic here at Whitworth, one of great interest. But Rob's expertise in this topic, and perhaps more importantly, his passion for those that it affects, stuck with me. So I'm delighted to give him the opportunity to share both his expertise and that passion with the Whitworth community at this time when careful theological thought on immigration is a particularly pressing need. Robert Heimberger, God and the Illegal Alien, Federal United States Immigration Law and a Theology of Politics. Thanks, Rob. Thanks to Dr. Will Kynes for inviting me uh, to come to speak tonight and, to, and welcoming to me to Spokane. I feel like I'm in the Northwest here with a, this sort of feel of chapel, um, no longer in England. Thanks for coming out. Um, have, have good memories of, of talking with Will some years ago at Keeble College in Oxford, maybe over. This is a cup of tea or, or coffee at, after lunch, but um, on this very topic, so years ago, which is one of many conversations that have helped um, bring this work to what it is now. So it's a privilege to be here. Start off with, a, with a, a prompt and a question. God loves migrants. Is this, this bold title just one opinion among many? Is this right? What's the Bible have to say 
what's the Christian tradition have to say about migrants? Now, before I, I dig into the more particular topic I'm talking about tonight, um, illegal immigration, I wanted to get a sense of, of where you are, and maybe you could tell your neighbor a bit of your, your response to this question. What is, does God love migrants? What's the Bible have to say about migration? What do you think are sort of key things, that, themes that come out from the scriptures or the Christian tradition on migrants? So I would invite you to turn to your neighbor for just a couple, three minutes um, to answer that question. Well, let me, let, let me draw you back. Helps me to get a sense of where, where various of you might be coming from. wonder if I could get two or three comments for what, what do you think are kind of, what's the Bible have to say about migrants? What are some key themes that come from the scriptures or the Christian tradition? We've gotten a good, good stretch then of, of some major biblical themes, um, theological themes about migration. It helps, you, helps me know. Yes, you had something else to say. Commit to neighbor love and not beholding the person in terms of being attracted to beauty or wealth or background or whatever, whatever it may be. Great. Well, thank you. It sounds like a number of you have, have thought about this topic. Um, uh, I want to say the, the work I present tonight builds on what I think are, are these sort of incredible claims about migrants from Scripture that we've heard a sampling of tonight. And if you're, if you're not so familiar with them, I would encourage you, yeah, just go sort of have a search in, in your Bible for terms like sojourners, foreigners, aliens, depending on the translation. Um, and think a bit about how many of the narratives, the stories from scriptures are about migration. Um, and just to give a, and a brief taste of what I'm talking about before getting into more detailed questions, um, here I wanted to discuss a passage from Deuteronomy um, that many of you will be familiar with. Um, God loves migrants. There's a question, is this just a provocative partisan title? No, I would think it's, it's a legitimate translation of, of, of a key passage from Deuteronomy. From Deuteronomy 18, the Lord executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So you're probably familiar with the context. Uh, God's people are at the banks of the River Jordan, looking over to the land the Lord their God is giving them. And Moses reminds them of where they've come from. In chapter 1 of Deuteronomy, that the Lord their God has carried them all the way to this place, that he went before them in, in fire by night and in cloud by day. So we get a sense of a God who accompanies his people and shows them the way. This is a migrant God. And in chapter 10, God's people hear that the Lord demands that they love and serve the Lord with all their heart and with all their soul. This comes from a God who has lavished his love on a particular people, Israel, who we heard a little bit about. Who is this God in Deuteronomy 10? He is God of gods, Lord of lords. As great authority, he's defined by his impartiality does not take bribes. And as we heard, he executes 
justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. The fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner. This, we could say, is the star trio of good government in the Hebrew Bible. Judgment is just if and only if the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner are not mistreated or treated fairly. The Hebrew word, as you may know, is ger, translated stranger, alien, foreigner, sojourner. As I understand it, this is someone who comes from another place, who's from outside of the household, in a time when, when household belonging made all the difference for well-being. It could be someone from outside of Israel, or it could be someone from another tribe or family, an, uh, an immigrant or a migrant. I think the best word is probably migrant. And we, so we could translate it this, this way. But wait, we've talked about justice for widow, fatherless, sojourner. But, but this verse goes beyond that to say, uh, to speak of love. He loves, God loves the, loves the sojourner, loves the migrant. And this is what God is like and how he's defined in Deuteronomy 10. And I take this not just to be an obscure piece of legislation that could be dismissed as culturally irrelevant, but in a sense, revealing who God is, that God loves the sojourner, God loves the migrant, God loves migrants. And, in, and God invites his hearers to love like he loves. In the, in the following verse, love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Or with an altered translation, Love the migrant, therefore, for you were migrants in the land of Egypt. Share in God's love. Love migrants, too. You may have heard that what, uh, that what looked like commands in Hebrew can also be translated as promises. You must love the migrant can also be understood as uh, you will love migrants, uh, a promise that you will be able to, you'll be able to love migrants. Uh, if you accept what I have to give you, if you let me be your God, the, the thought goes, then you will love migrants too. Now, wait a second. There was more there. For you were migrants in the land of Egypt. So that's well and good for ancient Israel. We already heard a, a comment from, the, from the, uh, those gathered here tonight that it's not, this isn't just for Israel, but we can find this in the New Testament as well. And if you haven't read 1 Peter recently... I'd encourage you to go back and, and read it. And it, you might feel it speaks a little bit more to the situation of not being part of ancient Israel, but being part here in Spokane, perhaps part of a church uh, in Spokane. This is a, 1 Peter is a letter that envisions the church as migrants. And, and we read it maybe in an altered translation, Beloved, I urge you as visiting foreigners and settled migrants to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So this book is directed to a community of migrants, a parallel community alongside settled communities. The churches put up with suspicion, fear, and discrimination, and their practices were different. Their aim was that those around them would glorify God on the day of their vi of, of visitation. So it it's not just Israel who's described as migrants, but the church too. 
And the promise then is if you've yielded to God's love for you and joined his beloved people, then you are living like migrants or, or let yourself discover a migrant um, identity. If you're interested, I've, I've written more on what I think is a sort of mainstream of biblical teaching on migration in issue one of IFE's Word and World, which you can find at ifeastjournal.org. And it, I've just given a sample from Deuteronomy and First Peter of, of the many astounding things that the Bible has to say about migrants, many of which we heard tonight. And I see this as the backdrop to the more particular questions I'm going to deal with tonight. Will's invited me to speak on this book, which is out recently. Um, afraid it's very expensive, but it, <laughs> as of this summer, it should be slightly more affordable. Um, uh, the book looks asks a more particular question about the questions facing this country now, with some 11 million people who are present, present in the United States, and I hear uh, among them students or perhaps members of the community here at Whitworth. Um, who are considered illegal aliens under the law. Now, I put, I put that word in, in quotation marks. It's one of the words that's used in the law, and it's, it's consistently used. Um, it, it's one I have some problem with, and, I, and it and does great on the ears, um, depending on where you come from. Um, anyway, the book asks about uh, the issues facing this community of some 11 million people in this country. And then it draws on Christian scriptures and theologians to evaluate the assumptions of federal immigration law, to question them, and ultimately to point a way out, some ways out of this controversial problem. So how did it come about that so many people in the United States could be considered illegal aliens under the law? Just a, a quick summary. Of the, of the history, a uh, first step, uh, this term, the alien, from about the year 1400 in English law and common law, the basic distinction moved from being between free and unfree to being alien and subject. And the United States uh, moved away from England in, in talking about citizens rather than subjects as, the, as members, but yet it retained this contrast term of an alien. The alien is the kind of person who can become a naturalized citizen. Uh, and it, and in, in this early stretch of law, the alien increasingly becomes a sort of standalone concept, isolated, a kind of person who's worthy of suspicion. Step two, the illegal alien, the term under law, the United States Supreme Court in 1889-1893 clarifies what was not clear in the Constitution that the federal government has the right to exclude aliens and the right to expel aliens. In this unusual corner of federal law, the government has sovereignty that is limited only by the consent of the governed. And finally, a step three, so-called illegal alien, from a neighboring country. As I see it, a quirk of 1960s liberalism disadvantages neighboring Mexico. So there was, there was a move that had been quite discriminatory immigration policy that favored Northwestern Europe, and the move was to put every country on an equal footing and to stop discriminating based on nationality. <clears throat> but what Congress decided to do was give, uh, after certain categories, roughly give the same numbers of visa spaces to each foreign country, and for the first time there were numerical limits on immigration from the Western Hemisphere and not just qualitative limits. <clears throat> and so Mexico was soon on the same footing as 
Mauritania, or Mongolia. Mexicans kept immigrating to the United States, but now largely illegally, forming a community <coughs> that has, begins to be hemmed in by a well-guarded southern... Sorry, just a second. So the sense is that the Mexicans kept coming to the United States, but under illegal categories. And this community peaks in about 2007 and is stabilized at present. So the book looks at these three steps and then draws on Christian resources to evaluate the steps. <coughs> the alien, the illegal alien, and the illegal alien from a neighboring country. So rather than just give a summary of the whole book, I want to pay attention to this second step so that we can have a little bit of attention to legal text and biblical text uh, rather than proof texting from legal sources or biblical sources. So focusing on this second step, how it came to be that there were illegal aliens, um, where did, how did federal law develop so that this was possible, and how do claims to sovereignty fit within a, a faith that claims that Jesus is Lord, that he is sovereign. And I'll finish with a summary of where I think this analysis leads um, for people who are unlawfully present in the United States. <clears throat> so there was a time in the 19th century when it wasn't clear who, if anyone, held authority over immigration in the United States. <clears throat> but this began to change when the Supreme Court firmly established federal sovereignty over immigration when it took up a case from the new state of California. Soon after the United States wrested control of Western lands for Mexico, Chinese immigrants began arriving in California. And in response, <coughs> the, the city of San Francisco, the state of California, and the United States federal government enacted a series of laws meant to impede Chinese immigration and restrict those Chinese persons already present. In 1882, Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, a little, a little fuzzy there, Chinese Exclusion Act, which forbade any new Chinese subjects from coming to the U.S. or remaining in the U.S. <coughs> and barring all Chinese persons from U.S. citizenship. And the first case to uphold this 1882 law was called Che Chan Ping versus the United States. It gives an account of Chinese exclusion. <coughs> Here's the story. Che Chen Ping arrived in California in 1875 and resided there without gaining citizenship until 1887. He left on a ship for China, and he took with him what was allowed for in, in law at the time, that he could carry a certificate with him that would allow him to return to the country. <clears throat> in 1888, he boarded the steamer Belgic. There's a picture of it here, bound from Hong Kong to San Francisco. And while he was on board, Congress packed an act, passed an act annulling the kind of certificate that he held that would have allowed him back in the country. So the Belgic arrived in the port of San Francisco, and Che Chan Ping was held on board the steamer because his certificate was now invalid. That's the story. Ping's lawyers, the Chinese community, kind of gathered together to, to, to fund lawyers for him, and they mounted an argument against his detention aboard the Belgic and his exclusion from American territory. <coughs> they argued that Ping's detention was a deprivation of Ping's liberty without due process. They said that the people of the United States had not delegated the power to exclude aliens 
to any branch of government. And they argued that the 1888 law that annulled certificates like Ping's was an ex post facto law. <clears throat> what was more, Ping's detention violated a treaty with China. It did not hold to the terms of the contract the United States made through giving him a certificate to return. So despite these arguments of Ping's counsel, <coughs> the Supreme Court upheld the exclusion of Che Chan Ping from United States territory. And it was a, a Justice Stephen J. Field who wrote that the laws passed to restrict Chinese immigration were justified because, and I quote, a limitation to the immigration of certain classes from China was essential to the peace of the community on the Pacific coast and possibly to the preservation of our civilization there, end quote. So Justice Field explained, <coughs> as, as he saw it, Chinese immigrants came to the US and undercut cut competition. They evoked open conflicts, he said. He spoke of differences of race. He said that Chinese immigrants remained strangers in the land, living together, holding on to the habits and the customs of their country. And he cited a, there was a constitutional convention from California that had talked about the Chinese presence as having a baneful effect on public morals, a reverence to Chinese prostitution and opium dens. And the convention went on in justice fields to judge that, and I quote, Chinese immigration was in numbers approaching the character of an oriental invasion, he said, and was a menace to our civilization, that they retained the habits and customs of their own country, and in fact con constituted a Chinese settlement within the state without any interest in our country or its institutions. A strong judgment, as, as you can hear. So the court, court ruled that for these reasons, Congress was justified in progressively limiting Chinese immigration. So this was going on in California in the 1880s. Um, I was reminded that, that similar things were going on in Washington State. And I don't know if, if any of you are familiar with sort of 1880s era riots and mob violence against Chinese immigrants. Uh, it was something that hadn't been familiar to me in, until I read in, in more detail about this. Um, it looked like there were riots in 1885, particularly in places called Coal Creek, Black Diamond, and eventually in Tacoma and Seattle. <clears throat> Thank you. I'm not, yeah, <laughs> thought my voice was fine. Um, so it could be a, a fascinating thing. I'm from Alabama. People always ask about race issues if, if I say that. Something that went on here was, was mobs getting together to push all Chinese settlers out, or immigrants out of a town. What was going on here in the 1880s? I wonder. So from this case, back to the case, Justice Field talked about, he had sort of two kinds of arguments about being an independent nation. <coughs> and the first kind of argument was that to be independent means to maintain exclusive rule over lands. And the authority to exclude aliens dem demonstrates that independence. And any exception to that rule must be established by the consent of the nation. The second kind of argument the Justice Field made was that a major purpose of the nation is to provide security from attack. And he said it didn't matter if that attack was a military attack or whether it was by, he said, vast hordes of its people crowding in upon us. So the, the court 
decided that it was, it was just what it was to be a nation that by the consent of the governed, people could be excluded from its territory. <clears throat> so as we hear this justification, we also get a, a bit of a sense of what the court thought immigration authority was protecting. Peace, economic interests, civilization, morals, some common customs and habits. <clears throat> but in the end, the only limitation of that authority was the consent of the nation. It was up to the nation to judge who, what, what, if what it shared was under threat. Now I wonder how you react to this. Um, maybe we'll get to hear in the questions uh, how you react to this case. You might be uh, you might be inclined to agree with the sort of view of immigration that's put put out here, but let me let me propose that there are at least a couple couple of problems I can see with the court's judgment. Now there didn't seem to be a, a strong urge to question the judgment of those in California that Chinese immigration was threatening communities of European ancestry there. And also, it looked only to the one nation to, to make decisions about immigration policy without reference to broader concerns, international society, norms of justice, or indeed the judgment of God. And so a long-term resident of California, Chi Chen Ping, who sought to return on a certificate issued by the federal government, was denied entry and sent back to China later in 1889. So this case study sort of gives us a picture of what immigration authority is doing, is, is thought to, to do in U.S. law. Now what about in the, in the Christian tradition? There, there are many different ways we could, could approach this issue, and indeed different theologians and writers take different angles on this, on this topic. <clears throat> I propose um, tonight to look at Psalm 82, a, a text from the Hebrew Bible that deals with God's relationship to those in authority. I don't recognize that we always read the Bible as, as um, with others and as part of some tradition. And so this evening, I um, wanted to read alongside Martin Luther, who has some interesting things to say about this psalm. And it'll lead me toward this conclusion, that where uh, the... The Supreme Court in Che Chan Ping versus the United States envisions a world where one nation gets to treat foreigners how it wants to. Psalm 82 envisions a world where God establishes political authority and directs its treatment of foreigners. So what's this ancient Hebrew text claim about political authority? In the reading of the reformer Martin Luther, it begins like this. God stands in the congregation of God and is judge among the gods. Now Luther says that, that mad reason thinks that human communities just come about by accident. But no, he says that human communities are the congregations of God. They're sort of brought together by God. And, and, he's, and Luther says that, that God's made and makes all communities, and he, he brings them together, feeds them, and blesses them with, with everything they need, even body and life, to, to, to live well together. And as we'll see, this psalm goes on to talk about the responsibility of those who judge, those in authority. 
Luther thus thinks that the gods, in the, in the lowercase gods, in verse 1, are human rulers. They're gods in the sense that they are godly, established and preserved by the living God. Now, some will say that government comes about by human will. It might be familiar to you if you've read sort of modern political philosophy. But as Luther reads this psalm, God is an authority over human rulers, and God established them and establishes them and continues to judge them. So the first, right from the first verse, we hear a perspective that's very different from what happens in U.S. case law. Civil authority is not just an, uh, an expression of popular will. It's not the, the people that bestow authority, but it's God who first bestows that authority. And those in authority must answer to God who preserves and sustains human communities and all life on earth. So what responsibilities might those who govern immigration have before God? The next three verses reveal more. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Judge the weak and the orphan. Do justice to the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the oppressed and the needy. Snatch them out of the hand of the wicked. So these verses draw the task of government as a task of judging. Now, this is a, we don't usually use ju- judging in this sense. We usually think of judging as a sort of negative judgment. But here, maybe the richer understanding is a just and fair judgment. And this unjust judgment is first directed, as you see in, in verse 3, to the weak and the orphan, the afflicted and the destitute. Who are the most vulnerable in ancient Israel? Well, we've already heard tonight, orphan. And it reminds us of that, what I call the sort of star trio of just government in, in the Old Testament. Um, the widow, the orphan, stranger, or the migrant. And this psalm carries on as part of this tradition that basic to the, right, to the right use of political authority is doing justice to those who are vulnerable, including the one who comes from afar to stay, the migrant. And the psalm goes on to speak of rescuing, rescue the oppressed and the needy, uh, and while the, maybe the third verse talks about the law, this verse, on Luther's reading, talks about the use of force. Luther thought that the use of the sword was oriented toward making peace, but he thinks not only of arms, but of walls that establish a realm of peace, as he says, within these walls of peace we sit secure. We're talking a lot about walls today, perhaps we could come back to that at the, <laughs> in the question time. He wants to praise those who protect this realm of peace. And this is the world of the so-called gods, given a special task by God. And skipping forward to verse 8, the psalm concludes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. Given that human governments fail, that judges often don't judge the vulnerable or the migrant fairly, the psalmist prays for another government and kingdom, according to Luther. He says that this God is Jesus Christ, overlord of all the earth. And above the justice wisdom of power of those in authority during this era lies a justice wisdom and power that are the work of God, or that these are the work of God, and yet there's another kingdom with its own justice, wisdom, and power. And in a 
Christian interpretation of this, this text. He says this is the kingdom of Christ. All right, my voice seems to be holding out, so that's a good thing. <laughs> Carry on. So what have we learned? We've encountered these two worlds of thought, and if you've, if you've followed me, um, the world of thought of the Supreme Court, 1889. Um, a world of thought from, from, from the Psalms. Uh, we've seen, in the one case, a, a long-term U.S. resident forbidden to re-enter the country, causing the Supreme Court to articulate a right to exclude aliens, as it's put, in, in the interest of protecting goods held in common by U.S. citizens. Um, we are. So what matters here is sovereignty, limited only by the consent of the governed acting through Congress. Now, in, but in Psalm 82, through Martin Luther's guidance, uh, the authority of the U.S. government, like any government, doesn't stand on its own. The community it stands over has been gathered by God, and God establishes an authority over it. The guardian of human communities is limited and restricted to this era and subject to the ongoing judgment of God. It might serve some good for a people to be independent of other peoples, and in some sense sovereign, but still that independence is not the only good. Government is tasked with preserving other goods as well. Here with Luther protecting the helpless and the oppressed. <coughs> so I conclude, I conclude from this, this psalm that immigrants uh, must not be treated as, as pawns in a game of sovereignty. The federal government has responsibilities to protect immigrants' well-being as well, if it's among the gods established by God. And authority over immigration isn't unlimited or a good in itself. It must serve some other goods beside itself. So on one account, we hear the United States considering its own well-being and then eventually judging who is in and who is out. The nation sovereign over immigration. And in another account, political authorities answer to God about how they govern here they must do justice to the vulnerable, including migrants, and they must protect the oppressed, the nations judged by God. <clears throat> so I wanted to make a, a kind of basic point about uh, what, what really seems to be the founding assumption in federal U.S. immigration law, that there's something called sovereignty over immigration, and ask what... What would the Christian tradition, what would the scriptures have us to think about these claims of sovereignty? That's a basic point in a way, but you might have thought, hey, there's more to say. What are the, what are the sort of immediate payoffs of that kind of position? Um, now, I think different people might go different directions who, who still might share that, that assumption that God establishes human communities and establishes authorities over them. But I'll give you a taster of, I guess, where I, where I think this analysis leads. And you might disagree, and I'd love to hear about that from, from in the question time very soon. So I think in a fuller theological framework, um, uh, this political authority happens within a kind of human activity of guarding places that, that's part of God's provision for human life since the fall until the new city of, of walls with op and open gates. Uh, We've talked about human authority, about the, the obligation to protect the vulnerable, and including migrants. 
I also think there's a, a drawing on the story of Israel's wilderness wanderings in Deuteronomy 2 and 3. We get a sense that God gives uh, other nations land to possess, other nations other than Israel, but also dispossessed. There are stories of sort of possession and dispossession. And when nations fail to uphold God's standards of justice, God may let their lands be taken away. That's a slightly larger theological picture. What more can be said um, about this sort of question today about uh, unauthorized immigration, illegal immigration? I think the, the guardian places under God's guardian is best expressed as a protection on human life. There's one reading of the, of the city of Cain that, that, uh, that guarding protects human life against unjust killing and vengeance. But then there are questions about other reasons for protecting a human community, like preserving a culture or protecting jobs. I think at that point, the argument is not so strong. It seems like when governments begin to protect economic or cultural goods, they then get caught up in detaining and deporting people. And the, the standard uh, punishment for illegal entry or overstaying a visa is deportation, which I see as deeply upsetting lives and families. Um, keep in touch a bit with, with what goes on in Tennessee, where my parents live. And just this past week, there was a, apparently a raid of a meatpacking um, factory where some 100 people were rounded up because of um, failure to comply with immigration law. And you can sort of watch videos online of family members gathering around making appeals for um, uh, the, this is really upset our communities and, and split our families up. Um, so there's great harm, I think, in this sort of typical punishment for immigration infractions of, of deportation. And I think it's hard to say that this harm is justified in light of some future harm to a, that a person might cause to an economy or a culture. Especially when someone, and you may know someone like this, or you may be in a situation, someone's established a home and is working or participating in a community, it's difficult to argue that deporting them is justified based on some analysis of an immigrant taking away jobs or causing harm to a community. And in, indeed, these analyses are debated and they usually involve some unknown future. These considerations, you may or may not agree, lead back to my overall point that the government of immigration takes place under God's government, and at such, it best proceeds modestly and uh, is best practiced mercifully. We'll take some time for some questions, but I'll read you if, you, if you're interested in further reading, just a few recommended um, points of reading. Um, uh, in communities I'm more familiar with, I might also give recommendations for churches or groups that are kind of involved in these issues, and you, you will know better than me what's going on in Spokane around issues of migration. Um, I look forward to your comments and questions, and uh, I hope not to only be speaking to people who already agree, but would love to hear if there, there's disagreement um, or other thoughts. So, thank you. <laughs>